0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Elizabeth Taylor called The Letter Writers.
1: She stood before an alarming crisis, the crisis of meeting for the first time the person whom she knew best in the world.
0: The story was chosen by Paul Theroux whose fiction and journalism have been appearing in the magazine since 1979. His latest book is The Last Train to Zona Verde, My Ultimate African Safari. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul.
1: It's lovely to be here, Deborah.
0: Now, The first time you appeared on this podcast, it was uh, in 2007, and you read a story by Borges.
1: Oh, yeah, a wonderful story, The Gospel According to Mark.
0: Yeah, and when we talked about doing another one, you came up with a number of different writers to choose among. Peter DeVries, S.J. Perelman, Joyce Carey, V.S. Pritchett— What made you decide on Elizabeth Taylor?
1: Elizabeth Taylor has an unfortunate name. People might think that um, it's uh, the actress in an earlier incarnation. Elizabeth Taylor is a wonderful novelist and a wonderful short story writer and greatly neglected. I chose her not only because I feel that she's been neglected, but because the, the stories read so well. There's a slightly dated quality to the syntax, but she was a woman who lived in Buckinghamshire outside London. I don't know much about her personally, but her stories show that she did a little bit of traveling in Europe, knew England very well, but knows the English middle class extremely well. So I chose the story partly because it's so modern. It's about two people who've never met who've corresponded for 10 years. It's two people who are sort of imagining what one another is like.
0: You mentioned that she's been neglected And in fact, there's one article about her that says, you know, she is best known for not being better known. Antonia Fraser called her one of the most underrated writers of the 20th century. Why has she sort of slipped out of the public eye?
1: I think for the same reason that a lot of people, men and women, of her class and time have slipped out. Her interests are domestic. You know, it's the English village. Who cares, you might say? Although, you know, Jane Austen managed... But I think that she's writing about a class of people that read about themselves but don't travel much beyond that class. I think she's class-bound, mm-hmm. but she's subtle on emotions. She's subtle on manners. She's subtle on conventions and brilliantly witty in, in a lot of cases. I mean, I think this is a great story.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting when you read about her a little bit that there are just so many conflicting views of her. You know, she she is, as you say, sort of dismissed as – Someone who wrote domestic fiction or women's stories or village stories. And I think she maybe reinforced that a bit. She sort of would claim to come up with her ideas while she was doing the ironing.
1: She was very modest. This story, the letter writers, the woman writing, Emily, is writing to this novelist. And there's a lot of desire, but it's, it's, it's what has been described as smothered fires. It's a smothered, a banked fire. It's just smoldering there. And Emily is a writer, She's, in a a sense, writing an epistolary novel to this stranger, but a man who becomes more and more familiar and intimate.
0: I think there were two epistolary passions also in her life, in Elizabeth Taylor's life, at least. This story is apparently based on her correspondence with another writer called Robert Liddell, who, unfortunately, at her request, destroyed all of her letters when she died. But there are a lot of parallels. Well, as we'll see in the story, Emily goes to the country where her correspondent is living and doesn't see him, and uh, Taylor went to Greece where Liddell was living and and didn't see him, purposefully. So there's probably quite a bit of truth to the story.
1: You know more about the background than I do. Was she married at the time? She was. Oh, oh, oh! That's interesting.
0: Well, she's also she's also you know not just this sort of middle class housewife. She was briefly a member of the Communist Party. She was someone who was quite politically active and someone who was also championed by writers you wouldn't expect, like Kingsley Amos. Very much a writer's writer,
1: in a way. She's exemplary in, in, in what she does, though. But, I mean, she had an audience. I mean, New Yorker readers must have loved them. She, she published lots of stories in the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. So she must have had a following that way, too. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that um, that she had this epistolary... Relationship with uh, this uh, other man in, in Greece. That's really interesting to me. I'll find out more about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we can talk some more about the story after you read it. And now here's Paul Theroux reading The Letter Writers by Elizabeth Taylor.
1: At 11 o'clock, Emily went down to the village to fetch the lobsters. The heat unsteadied the air. Light shimmered and glanced off leaves and telegraph wires. And the flag on the church tower Spreading out in a small breeze, then dropping, wavered against the sky, as if it were flapping under water. She wore an old cotton frock and meant to change it at the last moment, when the food was all ready and the table laid. Over her bare arms, the warm air flowed, her skirt seemed to divide as she walked, pressed in a hollow between her legs, like drapery on a statue. The sun seemed to touch her bones, her spine, her shoulder blades, her skull. In her thoughts, she walked nakedly, picking her way over dry-as-dust cow dung along the lane. All over the hedges, trumpets of large white convolvulus were turned upwards towards the sky, the first flowers she could remember. Something about them had in her early childhood surprised her with astonishment and awe, a sense of magic that had lasted, like so little else, "'repeating itself again and again "'most of the summers of her forty years. "'From the wide-open windows of the village school "'came the sound of a tinny piano. "'We'll rant and we'll roar like true British sailors,' "'sang all the little girls. "'Emily, smiling to herself as she passed by, "'had thoughts so delightful "'that she began to tidy them into sentences "'to put in a letter to Edmund. "'Her days were not full or busy,' "'and the gathering in of little things to write to him about "'took up a large part of her time. "'She would have made a paragraph or two about the children's singing, "'the hot weather, so rare in England, "'the scent of the lime and privet blossom, "'the pieces of tin glinting among the branches of the cherry trees, "'but the instinctive thought was at once checked by the truth "'that there would be no letter-writing that evening after all. "'She stood before an alarming crisis.' one that she had hoped to avoid for as long as ever she lived, the crisis of meeting for the first time the person whom she knew best in the world. What will he be like did not worry her. She knew what he was like. If he turned out differently, it would be a mistake. She would be getting a false impression of him, and she would know that it was temporary and would fade. She was more afraid of herself and wondered if he would know how to discount the temporary "'and false in her. "'Too much was at stake, and for herself "'she would not have taken the risk. "'I agree that we have gone beyond meeting now. "'It would be retracing our steps,' he had once written to her. "'Although, perhaps, if we were ever in the same country, "'it would be absurd to make a point of not meeting. "'This, however, was what she had done "'when she went to Italy the next year. "'In Rome,' Some instinct of self-preservation kept her from giving him her aunt's address there. She would telephone, she thought, but each time she tried to, her heart banging erratically within a suddenly hollow breast, she was checked by thoughts of the booby trap lying before her. In the end, she skirted it. She discovered the little street where he lived and felt the strangeness of reading its name, which she had written hundreds of times on envelopes. Walking past his house on the opposite pavement, she had glanced timidly at the peeling apricot coloured plaster. The truth of the situation made her feel quite faint. It was frightening, like seeing a ghost in reverse, the insubstantial suddenly solidifying into a patchy and shabby reality. At the window on the first floor, one of the shutters was open. There was the darkness of the room beyond an edge of yellow curtain and hanging over the back of a chair set near the window, what looked like a white skirt. Even if Edmund himself threw open the other shutter and came out onto the balcony, he would never have known that the woman across the road was one of his dearest friends. But all the same, she hastened away from the neighborhood. At dinner, her aunt thought she might be ill. Her visitors from England so often were, from the heat, and sightseeing, and the change of diet. The odd thing to Emily about the escapade was its vanishing from her mind. The house became its own ghost again, the house of her imagination, lying on the other side of the road, where she had always pictured it, with its plaster unspoilt, and Edmund inside, in his tidied-up room, writing to her. He had not chided her when she sent a letter from a safer place, explaining her lack of courage, and explain it she could so fluently, half-touchingly, yet wholly amusingly, on paper. He teased her gently, understanding her decision. In him, curiosity and adventurousness would have overcome his hesitation. Disillusionment would have deprived him of less than it might have deprived her. Her letters were a relaxation to him. To her, his were an excitement and her fingers often trembled as she tore open their envelopes. They had written to one another for ten years. She had admired his novels since she was a young woman, but would not have thought of writing to tell him so, that he could conceivably be interested in the opinion of a complete stranger did not occur to her. Yet sometimes she felt that without her as their reader, the novels could not have had a fair existence. She was so sensitive to what he wrote that she felt her own reading half-created it. Her triumph at the end of each book had something added of a sense of accomplishment on her part. She felt it, to a lesser degree, with some other writers, but they were dead. If they had been living, she would not have written to them either. Then one day she read in a magazine an essay he had written about the boyhood of Tennyson. His conjecture on some point she could confirm for she had letters from one of the poet's brothers. She looked for them among her grandfather's papers, and she was never impulsive, save when the impulse was generosity. Sent them to Edmund with a little note to tell him that they were a present, to repay some of the pleasure his books had given her. Edmund, who loved old letters and papers of every kind, found these especially delightful. So the first of many letters from him came to her beginning... Dear Miss Fairchild, His handwriting was very large and untidy and difficult to decipher. And this always pleased her, because his letters took longer to read. The enjoyment was drawn out, and often a word or two had to be puzzled over for days. Back, again and again, she would go to the letter, trying to take the problem by surprise. And that was usually how she solved it. Sometimes she wondered why he wrote to her and was flattered when he asked for a letter to cheer him up when he was depressed or to calm him when he was unhappy. Although he could not any longer work well in England for a dullness came over him from the climate and old vexatious associations, he still liked to have some foothold there and Emily's letters refreshed his memories. At first, he thought her a novelist manquet. Then he realized that Letter writing is an art by itself, a different kind of skill, though with perhaps a similar motive, and one at which English women have excelled. As she wrote, the landscape, flowers, children, cats and dogs sprang to life memorably. He knew her neighbors and her relation to them, and also knew people who were dead now, whom she had loved. He called them by the Christian names when he wrote to her and re-evoked them for her, so that being allowed at last to mention them, she felt that they became light and free again in her mind and not an intolerable suppression as they had been for years. Coming to the village on this hot morning, she was more agitated than she could ever remember being, and she began to blame Edmund for creating such an ordeal. She was angry with herself for acquiescing when he had suggested that he, being at last in England for a week or two, "'should come to see her. "'For an hour, or three at most, "'I want to look at the flowers in the very garden "'and stroke the cat "'and peep between the curtains at Mrs. Waterlow going by. "'He knows too much about me. "'So where can we begin?' she wondered. "'She had confided such intimacies in him. "'At that distance he was as safe as the confessional, "'with the added freedom from hearing any words said aloud.' She had written to his mind only. He seemed to have no face and certainly no voice. Although photographs had once passed between them, they had seemed meaningless. She had been so safe with him. They could not have wounded one another, but now they might. In ten years, there had been no inadvertent hurts of rivalry, jealousy, or neglect It had not occurred to either to wonder if the other would sometimes cease to write. The letters would come as surely as the sun. But will they now, Emily was wondering. She turned the familiar bend of the road, and the sea lay glittering below, its wrinkled surface looking solid and without movement, like a great sheet of metal. Now and then a light breeze came off the water and rasped together the dried grasses on the banks. When it dropped, the late morning silence held, drugging the brain and slowing the limbs. For years, Emily had looked into mirrors only to see if her hair were tidy or her petticoat showing below her dress. This morning, she tried to take herself by surprise to see herself as a stranger might, but failed. He would expect a younger woman from the photograph of some years back. Since that was taken, Wings of white hair at her temples had given her a different appearance. The photograph would not, in any case, show how poor her complexion was, unevenly pitted from an illness when she was a child. As a girl, she had looked at her reflection and thought, No one will ever want to marry me. And no one had. When she went back to the living room, the cat was walking about, smelling lobster in the air. Balked, troubled by desire, he went restlessly about the little room the pupils of his eyes two thin lines of suspicion and contempt but the lobster was high up on the dresser above the rockingham cups and covered with a piece of muslin Emily went over to the table and touched the knives and forks shook the salt in the cellar nicely level lifted a wine glass to the light she poured out a glass of sherry and stood well back from the window looking out between hollyhocks at the lane. "'Unless the train was late, he should be there. "'At any moment, the station taxi would come slowly along the lane "'and stop with terrible inevitability outside the cottage. "'She wondered how tall he was. "'How would he measure against the hollyhocks? "'Would he be obliged to stoop under the low oak beams? "'The sherry heartened her a little, at least,' Her hand stopped shaking, and she filled her glass again. The wine was cooling in a bucket down the well, and she thought that perhaps it was time to fetch it in, or it might be too cold to taste. The well had pretty little ferns of a very bright green growing out of the bricks at its sides, and when she lifted the cover, the ice-cold air struck her. She was unused to drinking much, and the glasses of sherry had first steadied her and then almost numbed her. "'With difficulty, she drew up the bucket, "'but her movements were clumsy and uncertain, "'and greenish slime came off the rope onto her clean dress. "'Her hair fell forward untidily. "'Far, far below, as if at the wrong end of a telescope, "'she saw her own tiny face looking back at her. "'As she was taking the bottle of wine from the bucket, "'she heard a crash inside the cottage. "'She knew it must have happened, "'but she felt too muddled to act quickly.' when she opened the door of the living room she saw as she expected the cat and the lobster and the Rockingham cups spread in disorder about the floor she grabbed the cat first though the damage was done now and ran to the front door to throw him out into the garden but opening the door was confronted by Edmund whose arm was raised just about to pull on the old iron bell at the sight of the distraught woman with untidy hair and her eyes full of tears he took a pace back "'There's no lunch,' she said quickly. "'Nothing.' "'The cat struggled against her shoulder, "'frantic for the remains of the lobster, "'and a long scratch slowly ripened across her cheek. "'Then the cat bounded from her "'and sat down behind the hollyhocks to wash his paws. "'How do you do?' Emily said. "'She took her hand away from his "'almost as soon as she touched him "'and put it up to her cheek, "'brushing blood across her face.' "'Let us go in and bathe you,' he suggested. "'Oh, no, please don't bother. It is nothing at all. "'But, yes, of course, come in, I am afraid.' "'She was incoherent, and he could not follow what she was saying. "'At the sight of the lobster and the china on the floor, "'he understood a little. "'All the same, she seemed to him to be rather drunk. "'Such wonderful cups and saucers,' he said, "'going down on his knees and filling his hands with fragments.' "'I don't know how you can bear it. "'It's nothing. It doesn't matter. "'It's the lobster that matters. "'There's nothing else in the house.' "'Eggs,' he suggested. "'I don't get the eggs till Friday,' she said wildly. "'Well, cheese?' "'It's gone hard and sweaty. "'The weather's so... "'Not that it isn't too hot to eat anything,' he said quickly, "'hotter than Rome, and I was longing for an English drizzle. "'We had a little shower on Monday evening. "'Did you get that in London?' Monday, no. Sunday we had a few spots. It was Monday here, I remember. The gardens needed it, but it didn't do much good. He looked round for somewhere to put the broken china. No, I suppose not. It hardly penetrated. Do put that in the waste paper basket. This cup is fairly neatly broken in half. It could be riveted. I can take it back to London with me. I won't hear of it, but it is so kind. I suppose the cat may as well have the remains of... "'This, though not straight away. "'He must be shown that I am cross with him. "'Oh, dear, and I fetched it last thing from the village "'so that it should be fresh. "'But that's not much use to you, as it's turned out.' "'She disappeared into the kitchen "'with her hands full of lobster shells. "'He looked round the room, "'and so much of it seemed familiar to him. "'A stout woman passing by in the lane "'and trying to see in through the window "'might be Mrs. Waterloo herself.' "'who came so amusingly into Emily's letters. "'He hoped things were soon going to get better, "'for he had never seen anyone so distracted as Emily when he arrived. "'He had been prepared for shyness "'and had thought he could deal with that. "'But her frenzied look, with the blood on her face "'and the bits of lobster in her hands, "'made him feel that he had done some damage "'which, like the china, was quite beyond his repairing.' She was a long time gone, but shouted from the kitchen that he must take a glass of sherry, as he was glad to do. ''May I bring some out to you?'' he asked. ''No, no, thank you. Just pour it out and I will come.'' When she returned at last, he saw that she had washed her face and combed her hair. What the great stain all across her skirt was, he could not guess. She was carrying a little dish of sardines all neatly wedged together as they had been lying in their tin.' it is so dreadful she began you will never forget being given a tin of sardines but they will go better with the wine than the baked beans which is the only other thing i can find i am very fond of sardines he said she put the dish on the table and then for the first time looked at him he was of medium height after all with broader shoulders than she had imagined his hair was a surprise to her From his photograph, she had imagined it was white. He was, after all, ten years older than she. But instead it was blonde and bleached by the sun. And I always thought I was writing to a white-haired man, she thought. Her look lasted only a second or two. And then she drank her sherry quickly with her eyes cast down. "'I hope you forgive me for coming here,' he said gravely. "'Only by seriousness,' "'could he hope to bring them back to the relationship in which they really stood? "'He approached her so fearfully, but she shied away. "'Of course,' she said, "'it is so nice. "'After all these years, but I'm sure you must be starving. "'Will you sit here?' "'How are we to continue?' he wondered. "'She was garrulous with small talk through lunch, "'pausing only to take up her wine glass. "'Then at the end, when she had handed him his coffee, she failed.' There was no more to say, not a word more to be wrung out of the weather or the restaurant in Rome they had found they had in common, of the annoyances of travel, the train that was late and the cabin that was stuffy. Worn out, she still cast about for a subject to embark on. The silence was unendurable. If it continued, might he not suddenly say, You are so different from all I had imagined. "'or their eyes might meet, "'and they would see in one another's nakedness and total loss. "'I did say Wednesday,' said Mrs. Waterlow. "'No, Thursday,' Emily insisted. "'If she could not bar the doorway with forbidding arms, "'she did so with malevolent thoughts. "'Gentle and patient neighbour she had always been, "'and Mrs. Waterlow, who had the sharp nose of the total abstainer, "'and could smell alcohol in Emily's breath, was quite astonished. "'The front door of the cottage opened straight into the living room "'and Edmund was exposed to Mrs. Waterlow, "'sitting forward in his chair, staring into a coffee cup. "'I'll just leave the poster for the jumble sale then,' said Mrs. Waterlow. "'We shall have to talk about the refreshments another time. "'I think, don't you, that half a pound of tea does fifty people?' Mrs. Harris will see to the slab cake. But if you're busy, I mustn't keep you, though, since I'm here, I wonder if I could look up something in your encyclopedia. I won't interrupt, I promise. May I introduce Mr. Fabry, Emily said, for Mrs. Waterloo was somehow or other in the room. Not Mr. Edmund Fabry? Edmund, still holding his coffee cup and saucer, managed to stand up quickly and shake hands. The author? I could recognize you from your photo. Oh, my daughter will be so interested. I must write at once to tell her. I'm afraid I've never read any of your books. Edmund found this, as he always found it, unanswerable. He gave an apologetic murmur and smiled ingratiatingly. But I always read the reviews of them in the Sunday papers, Mrs. Waterloo went on. I'm afraid we're rather a booky family. So far... She had said nothing to which he could find any reply. Emily stood helplessly beside him, saying nothing. She was not wringing her hands, but he thought that if they had not been clasped so tightly together, that was what would have happened. "'You've really kept Mr. Fabry in the dark, Emily,' said Mrs. Waterlow. "'Not so you to me,' Edmund thought. He had met her many times before in Emily's letters.' Already knew that her family was booky, and had had her preposterous opinions on many things. She was a woman of fifty five whose children had grown up and gone thankfully away. They left their mother almost permanently, it seemed to them, behind the tea urn at the village hall, and a good watching place it was. She had, as Emily once put it, the over alert look of a ventriloquist's dummy her head cocked slightly, turned to and fro between Emily and Edmund. Dyed hair, she thought, glancing away from him. She was often wrong about people. Now don't let me interrupt you. You get on with your coffee. I'll just sit quiet in my corner and bury myself in the encyclopedia. Would you like some coffee? Emily asked. I'm afraid it may be rather cold. If there is some going begging, nothing would be nicer. Shuva to Tom Tom, that's the one I want. She pulled out the encyclopedia and rather ostentatiously pretended to wipe dust from her fingers. She has presence of mind, Edmund decided, watching her turn the pages with speed and authority. She has really thought of something to look up. He was sure that he could not have done so as quickly himself. He wanted what it was that she had hit upon. She had come to a page of photographs of tapestry and began to study them intently. There appeared to be pages of close print on the subject. So clever, Edmund thought. She knew that he was staring at her and looked up and smiled, her finger marking the place. To settle an argument, she said, I'm afraid we're a very argumentative family. Edmund bowed. A silence fell. He and Emily looked at one another, but she looked away first. She sat on the arm of a chair as if she were waiting to spring up to see Mrs. Waterlow out, as indeed she was. The hot afternoon was a spell they had fallen under. A blue bottle zigzagged about the room, hit the window pane, then went suddenly out of the door. A petal dropped off a geranium on the window sill. Occasionally, but not often enough for Edmund, A page was turned, the thin paper rustling silkily over. Edmund drew his wrist out of his sleeve and glanced secretly at his watch, and Emily saw him do it. It was a long journey he had made to see her, and soon he must be returning. Mrs. Waterlow looked up again. She had an amused smile, as if they were a couple of shy children whom she had just introduced to one another. "'Oh, dear, why the silence? I'm not listening, you know,' You'll make me feel that I'm in the way. You preposterous old trollop, Edmund thought viciously. He leaned back, put his fingertips together, and said, looking across at Emily, Did I tell you that Cousin Joseph had a nasty accident? Out bicycling. Both of them, you know. Such a deprivation. No air either. But Constance very soon consoled herself with one of the army padres out there. They were discovered by Joseph batman in the most unusual circumstances. The Orient's insidious influence, I suppose, so strangely exotic for Constance, though. He guessed, though he did not look, that Mrs. Waterloo had flushed. And pretending not to be listening was struggling hard not to flush. Cousin Constance's thousand and one nights, he said. The Padre had courage, like engaging with a boa constrictor, I'd have thought. If only Emily had not looked so alarmed. He began to warm to his inventions, which grew more macabre and outrageous, and as he did so, he could hear the pages turning quickly, and at last the book was closed with a loud thump. That's clinched that argument, said Mrs. Waterloo. Hubert is so often inaccurate, but won't have it that he can ever be wrong. She tried to sound unconcerned, but her face was set in lines of disapproval. You are triumphant then, Edmund asked and he stood up and held out his hand. When she had gone, Emily closed the door and leaned against it. She looked exhausted. Thank you, she said. She would never have gone otherwise, and now it is nearly time for you to go. I'm sorry about Cousin Joseph. I could think of no other way. In Emily's letters, Mrs. Waterlow had been funny, but she was not in real life, and he wondered how Emily could suffer so much before transforming it. "'My dear, if you are sorry I came, then I am sorry too. "'Don't say anything, don't talk of it,' she begged him, "'standing with her hands pressed hard against the door behind her. "'She shrank from words, thinking of the scars they leave, "'which she would be left to tend when he had gone. "'If he spoke the truth, she could not bear it. "'If he tried to muffle it with tenderness, "'she would look upon it as pity. "'He had made such efforts, she knew,' but he could never have protected her from herself. He, facing her, turned his eyes for a moment towards the window. Then he looked back at her. He said nothing, but she knew that he had seen the station car drawing to a standstill beyond the hollyhocks. You have to go, she asked. He nodded. Perhaps the worst has happened, she thought. I have fallen in love with him. The one thing... "'from which I felt I was completely safe. "'Before she moved aside from the door, "'she said quickly as if the words were red-hot coals "'over which she must pick her way, "'If you write to me again, will you leave out today "'and let it be as if you had not moved out of Rome?' "'Perhaps I didn't,' he said. "'At the door he took her hand "'and held it against his cheek for a second, "'a gesture both consoling and conciliatory. "'When he had gone,' She carried her grief decently upstairs to her little bedroom, and there allowed herself some tears. When they were dried and over, she sat down by the open window. She had not noticed how clouds had been crowding into the sky. A wind had sprung up, and bushes and branches were jigging and swaying. The hollyhocks nodded together. A spot of rain as big as a halfpenny dropped onto the stone sill. Others fell over the leaves down below, and a sharp, cool smell began to rise at once from the earth. She put her head out of the window, her elbows on the outside sill. The soft rain, falling steadily now, calmed her. Down below in the garden, the cat wove its way through a flower bed. At the door, he began to cry piteously to be let in, and she shut the window a little and went downstairs. It was dark in the living room. The two windows were fringed with dripping leaves. There were shadows and silence. While she was washing up, the cat, turning a figure of eight round her feet, brushed her legs with his wet fur. She began to talk to him, as she often did, for they were alone so much together. If you were a dog, she said, we could go for a nice walk in the rain. As it was, she gave him supper and took an apple for herself. Walking about, Eating it, she tidied the room. The sound of the rain in the garden was very peaceful. She carried her writing things to the table by the window and there, in the last of the light, dipped her goose-quill pen in the ink and wrote in her fine and flowing hand her address. And then, Dear Edmund.
0: That was Paul Theroux reading The Letter Writers by Elizabeth Taylor which was published in The New Yorker in 1958. The story will also appear in the forthcoming You'll Enjoy It When You Get There, selected stories of Elizabeth Taylor, chosen and introduced by Margaret Drabble. The book will be published by New York Review Books in August 2014. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine, You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead.
2: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was gonna go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence. A place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow the writer's voice wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: So, Paul, you were talking a bit earlier before the story about the fact that this story is maybe a little dated, but maybe also entirely not dated. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: The echo is someone today who's writing an email to someone, could be a writer, could be someone that they saw online, and an email correspondence that goes over a 10-year period, which is not, not unlikely, and the people not meeting, but only knowing each other through email or through Facebook or you know whatever ways that people meet in cyberspace. So the story is about the day they meet in just the way it might happen now, someone saying Well, you've been emailing me from Hawaii, but, um, you know, I'm going to be in Honolulu, so maybe we can meet.
0: In the course of those 10 years, Emily and Edmund have built up this very intense intellectual intimacy. As you say, they're physical strangers, and and she even says she had written to his mind only.
1: Yeah, good line.
0: Do you think that their intimacy is, is real? Is it an illusion? Is it a delusion?
1: It's not a delusion because it's the meeting of minds. But the woman also has a physical presence in the story. And one of the great things about the story is that there's so much physicality. And she conveys this physicality in her letters. At the beginning of the story, she's walking along an English country lane, and it's summer, and it's hot. And the sun seems to touch her bones, it says. And then it says, in her thoughts, she walked nakedly, picking her way over dry-as-dust cow dung along the lane. Her skirt seemed to divide as she walked, pressed in the hollow between her legs. There's something very sensual about it, very physical. Then she drinks. She has a couple of sherries to fortify herself, and she goes to get the wine that's cooling in the well. And that's when all goes wrong. I mean, yeah. she she gets messed up. So the the physical details are very very powerful. The story is is so important because it shows how people can write to each other, and be passionate friends, and then meet, and it, it doesn't work at all. Just, it's a disaster. The minds and the bodies can disagree. It, it's that. It's that, that there's two people there. There's the people who write the letter and creating the world. And even making, she makes her world better, the, the nosy neighbor. In her, in her letters, is, is funny, it's comical and forgivable.
0: Yeah, well, apparently, Taylor's correspondent, Robert Liddell, insisted on burning the letters after she died, and he said her, her chief wish was that nothing should survive that could hurt anyone about whom she had been funny. So you get the sense that she had been writing about all of the people around her and the way that Emily does and that she had been presenting a, a world to him. And they had they had a very long correspondence. And Taylor did apparently eventually meet her correspondent, and according to him, was extremely nervous. And he he told a friend that she looked like she might have been entering a hospital theater for a life or death operation. <laughs> so <laughs> you get, you can really feel that she took something from her life and uh, and transformed it in this story. Yeah. I'm going back to to Edmund and Emily, do you think that their relationship is damaged for good, or do you think it'll go on as before?
1: She says, when you write again, don't mention this make it seem as though you've never left Rome, as though you were never here, you never saw me. And he says, perhaps I didn't. Perhaps I didn't leave Rome. Uh, mm-hmm. He's been kind to her. But also, you know that she's important to him. He's the only man in her life. She may not be the only woman in his life, but she's a very important one. And I think an unstated thing in the in the story is the fact that he lives in Rome. He's away from England. She's his link to English life, you don't know what sort of things he writes, but you can be pretty sure that they're based partly on things that she's telling him, and so she operates as a sort of um, informant to him. She's important to his work, to his writing. Mm-hmm. He's important to her as a passion. It's the you know the unrequited love, I guess. But he probably understands that and encourages it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So each of them plays a very important part in each other's lives. And at the end of this story, she's sort of seeing things to write about. She sees things the way a lot of writers do, that they sort of reconstitute them in their mind as sentences. You know, you Mm -hmm. walk down the street and you make a sentence or an image out of something that you see. So she's doing what a writer does. And so she writes to Edmund. But I think that the, uh, the meeting, they draw a veil over that, I think. So he's got a life, and she doesn't really, but she does live a sort of English uh, existence, which is important to him.
0: Yeah, she has a cat.
1: Yeah, her cat. She talks to the cat. Well, I guess we talk to our animals. I mean, I have geese, and uh, I was talking to them this morning because it's the mating season, and I was wondering who's going to pair up, and I was <laughs> encouraging them. So that's the kind of life I lead.
0: You mentioned earlier that tailors often put in the same class as Jane Austen in terms of this sort of social observation of the lives of or the love lives of women you know what I've read about her people often bring up Jane Austen and I wonder how appropriate you think that is Philip Hensher wrote a piece about her a few years ago in which he he said that was extremely inappropriate and, and Charlotte Bronte would be the the person to compare her to what he said was uh, what what Taylor loved best were outbreaks of vulgarity, embarrassingly improper behavior, people saying or doing exactly the wrong thing.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's it's not as neat. There are no happy endings in Elizabeth Taylor's stories and and novels. To compare it to a, you know, an unmarried English woman novelist is a little too convenient, I guess. Easy. Uh, I yeah. think people compare it to Barbara Pym too, mm-hmm. but. Her day is not over. Why she's not better known isn't that much of a mystery since there are so many good writers who aren't better known. or her in their time weren't better known. You know, Tolkien was just bubbling away on the back burner at Houghton Mifflin for decades and then suddenly I guess in the 60s or 70s found an audience and so it happens. You know, I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald was out of print at the time of his death. He wasn't you know, a household name at all. People come back. Faulkner was really very obscure until Malcolm Cowley did the portable Faulkner and kind of made sense of him. So it it, it happens. Writers go in and out of favor, but in terms of comparison, I don't know who to compare Elizabeth Taylor to. Some of her stories are genuinely creepy. I mean, very, very startling. Some of them aren't that great. She's not um, consistently great.
0: It's hard when you write so much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: She had some plots which were high drama, suicide and violence and abuse, kidnappings. Right. You know, there was that biography of her called The Other Elizabeth Taylor, and a lot of it was based on some letters that were found to her long-term lover who she was with for the first 10 years of her marriage and who was apparently a prisoner of war in Europe, and she was writing him these these passionate letters. That affair continued for 10 years until her husband finally made her give it up. So she she had a life that people didn't know about and that didn't sort of fit with the, the image of her.
1: How about that? Now, see, th- th- there's an amazing fact that she not only um, was passionate but acted on it. Husband must have been very sad about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, according
0: to the biography, it was somewhat in revenge
1: for his own uh, straying. But, I must read this book. The details of her life that I know are just fragments. I only know her through her... Through the stories. Her work.
0: And if you judge by the story, that may be a very good way to know her.
1: Well, you know, that's one way of knowing her. What this story is also about is the reader meeting the writer. <laughs> the writer and his... Re- I actually... Published a story in the New Yorker called "The Writer and His Reader," and it's about a meeting between a huge admirer of Anthony Burgess and, and Anthony Burgess himself. It's pure fiction. It appeared in the New Yorker, and then I made it up. My wife wrote to the New Yorker afterwards saying, "By the way, that's not me in the story." And um, <laughs> so, when the when when the reader meets the writer for the first time, I mean, they're usually disappointed, you know. Yeah. They think they're younger, taller, <laughs> more hair, funnier. You know, not so fretful. And there's a bit of that in this too. The uh, the occasion when the the famous writer, the, the very good writer, meets the devoted reader, and mm-hmm. and it's a disaster.
0: Mm-hmm. And suddenly she's she's pockmarked, or or he's dyed his hair.
1: But strangely enough, there's this upper Sue in that where it says she realized the worst had happened, that she was in love with him. It says in the story. Yeah. And uh, yeah. she only realizes that when she sees him. And uh, that's quite good.
0: Did that happen in the Anthony Burgess story?
1: But no, no. It ends, it's a complete disaster. <laughs> 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 Which is, you know, how could how could it be anything else, really?
0: Well, thank you so much, Paul.
1: Deborah, it's lovely to talk to you. You and too. And I'm glad that we had a chance to uh, do this excellent story.
0: Paul Theroux's most recent novel, The Lower River, was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can read his latest story for the magazine, I'm the Meat, You're the Knife, in the October 7, 2013 issue of The New Yorker. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store, where you can also download more than 75 previous fiction podcasts. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.